tonight we have the privilege of having a guest speak with to us, Dr. Groteis from Denver Seminary. He is a professor of philosophy there, teaches classes such as ethics and apologetics and philosophy of religion. Um, so he's here to share with us tonight, and he's going to be speaking on Psalm 90. So he asked me to read it before he comes up. So when I get done, um, he's going to come up, and would you just um, welcome him when I'm done reading? Thanks. So Psalm 90, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the whole world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn people back to dust, saying, Return to dust, you mortals. A thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by, or like a watch in the night. Yet you sweep people away in the sleep of death. They are like the new grass of the morning. In the morning it springs up new, but by the evening it is dry and withered. We are consumed by your anger and terrified by your indignation. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. All our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our years with a moan. Our days may come to 70 years or 80 if our strength endures Yet the best of them are but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and we fly away. If only we knew the power of your anger, your wrath is as great as the fear that is your due. Teach us to number our days, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Relent, Lord, how long will it be? Have compassion on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love, that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen trouble. May your deeds be shown to your servants, your splendor to their children. May the favor of the Lord our God rest on us. Establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Amen. Thank you, Kim. You may wonder, how could he preach an entire psalm in just maybe three hours? Um, so we'll find out. The title of this message is God, Dust, and Life, Finding Our Place Before God. And the reason I'm preaching the entire psalm is because it's really a unity, and you can't break it up into pieces. So what I'd like to do is emphasize the first section where Moses really laments about our state in a fallen world where time is used up so quickly and we moan and die and wonder what it all means. And then the second portion, which is 12 through 17, which is his earnest prayer for redemption. 
he can pray to the same God that has put us into this situation and ask this God and really beg this God for redemption and for meaning through all the trials and difficulties and sufferings of this world. And this psalm speaks very profoundly to the human condition, which is one of the great philosophical questions. Who are we as human beings? Where do we come from? What is our purpose? Is there a purpose? Are we just glorified animals? Are we gods in disguise? Is it completely unknown what we are and what our destiny might be? Furthermore, where are we? What kind of a universe is it? Is it created by a personal God? Is it just there? Richard Dawkins, the atheist, says that the universe shows us nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. Then the question is, what should we do in light of our situation in this very difficult world in which we sojourn? How should we spend our short life on earth in light of all the possibilities and in light of all the difficulties? So we need to find a way to orient ourselves and educate ourselves, our intellect and our emotions, before God with Moses as our model. And the big idea, basically, of this message is that our emotions have to be re-educated and reoriented as much as our mind if we're going to be followers of Jesus Christ. And we need to avoid the problem of emotional error or the lack of emotional intelligence and wisdom. Let me give some, some examples of this. I was in a restaurant with some friends about a year and a half ago, and there was a fellow sitting at a table all by himself just laughing and laughing, really at nothing and for no reason. He wasn't with anyone else. He was simply laughing. It was obvious that there was something wrong with him. He was emotionally maladjusted in some way. And the other side, I was coming back from Metro State, where I teach as an adjunct, and a woman boarded the light rail, very distraught. And unlike us, she voiced all of her thoughts. And she said, I missed it. I missed it. I missed dinner. I'm late. They're not going to hold a plate for me. And then she would start biting her hand. I'm not going to reproduce that because it would hurt. She would bite her hand. It's amazing she didn't draw blood. And she sat down right next to me, right across from me, actually. So I thought, what do I do? People are very uncomfortable. There was some voices in the car, and then everyone just pretended like she wasn't there. But she kept going on. I'm late. They won't hold a plate for me. I missed the train. My cell phone's out of minutes. So I looked at her and I said, it's all right. They'll hold a plate for you. It's okay. So you can use my cell phone. She used my cell phone, gave it back to me, bit her hand some more. I tried to do anything I could to calm her down. I said, you want a piece of gum? Yes. You know, so I gave her a piece of gum. That helped a little bit. We went through a tunnel. She said, I don't remember a tunnel here. I don't remember a tunnel. She's very frightened. I said, no, I've been on this train many times. There's a tunnel here. It's all right. And then she got off and stormed out to get her plate. It was a very sad situation for many reasons. But the reason I want to emphasize here is that she really didn't know how to orient herself emotionally in the face of a not terrible situation. She immediately voiced all these profound emotions to nobody in particular with a very loud voice. And it's very easy in our culture to become emotionally numb or paralyzed or anesthetized, to not feel properly in the world in which God has placed us. Or it's very easy to become emotionally frenetic over things that don't really matter. So we have this twin problem. We don't care enough about the things that we should care about, and we care excessively for things that don't really matter. 
In fact, trivia makes for great drama in a disoriented and maladjusted world. So we need an emotional intelligence, and that's what this psalm teaches us to do. As Ecclesiastes 3.4 says, there is a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. And you have to know what time it is so you don't do the wrong thing at the wrong time. Now, this is a psalm of Moses. Who is Moses? Psalm 103.7 tells us that God made his way known to Moses. He was a man who knew God, who walked with God. He was amazingly saved from death and raised by Pharaoh's daughter. He brought God's people out of Egypt miraculously, led them through the Red Sea, led them into the wilderness. He received the Ten Commandments. He was a prophet. He predicted the coming of Jesus Christ in Deuteronomy 18. He's the man who principally wrote the first five books of the Bible. And Moses was forbidden to enter the Promised Land because of a particularly bad emotional outburst. Moses probably wrote this psalm in the desert, thinking over the sins of his people and the promise that lay ahead. He would not see it, but God's people would eventually enter the Promised Land or the children of the people who came out of Egypt. So he's in the midst of this tension. He had received revelation from God. He had promises from God, but he would not himself enter in. And he's very similar to us if we are followers of Christ. If we know Christ, we know forgiveness, we know justification, we have encouragement to follow Christ to the end because of the great promises we're given, yet we still live amidst suffering, illness, disappointment, mental illness, all sorts of things. So the way that Moses approaches life under the sun before the coming of Christ really should help us in the way we approach it if we're followers of Christ today. And if you're not, listen in on this. Listen in to the heart of Moses, the man of God, and how he wrestles with the human condition in a world of suffering. Because suffering is really the most profound problem any philosophy can ever attempt to address. And the Bible is very straightforward and very profound on this question. Let's take a look at verses 1 and 2. Again, quickly, I'll try to go through the first part more quickly. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations before the mountains were born, where you brought forth the whole world from everlasting to everlasting. You are God. So what we find in the first 11 verses is basically our troubled home in God. It's a bit paradoxical. We have a troubled home, yet that home is not outside of the reach or the presence of God. Moses begins this psalm by talking about God as the eternal creator and designer. That's the reference point for this psalm. And God is ancient. God is, the, is far older than the most ancient thing we could think of. We have that expression, old as the hills or old as dirt. Well, God is older than that. He is ancient. He is eternal. And he has been God from everlasting to everlasting. He is the creator of everything, and he predates everything as the creator and the designer. And Moses begins this, and it's a prayer, by confidently addressing God. You see, he's not just talking about God, he's talking to God. He's doing both. He's saying who God is, and he responds to God in light of who God is, but he's also directly addressing God. He's not simply talking about him. And we see in this verse that God is both transcendent and imminent. Transcendent means he is above us and beyond us and before us. He's the creator of everything. Everything depends on God. 
yet he is not far off and utterly distant. In fact, Isaiah 57, 15 puts it this way. God is speaking here. I live in a high and holy place, but also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. So God dwells with people who are humble and contrite and who address him honestly, as Moses does in this psalm. Let's take a look at verses 3 and 4. Moses says to God, You turn people back to dust, saying, Return to dust, you mortals. A thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by, or like a watch in the night. So we have the eternal God contrasted with the fleetingness of human life. It's a tremendous comparison. We are like dust, as before God. We're here for a while, or we're like flowers that spring up and are impressive for a time, but they wither and die. Now, God spoke everything into existence at the beginning. You see that in Genesis 1. But now, for some reason, he speaks devastation to the sons of men. So we have the eternity of God, the fleetingness of life, and the threat of death. Now, what exactly happened? We're not told yet, but Moses continues on, verses 5 and 6, to talk about the fact that human beings are at odds with God. God, in fact, is angry with human beings. Yet you sweep people away in the sleep of death. They are like the new grass in the morning. In the morning it springs up new, but by evening it is dry and withered. So here's a tension that is being set up. Moses begins by saying, God, you are our dwelling place for all generations. And Moses received a special covenant from God for his people in Israel, the Decalogue and the rest of the law. So God is our dwelling place. He's not completely far off, although he is above us because he's the creator and designer and sustainer of the universe. Yet something is wrong. We live in the troubled home of God. We are swept away by God in death. We're like the grass that springs up. It looks fine, but that's short-lived. And I think here of a famous statement by a philosopher named Thomas Hobbes, who's not a Christian philosopher. He said, life is nasty, poor, brutish, and short. Now think about that for a minute. Nasty, poor, brutish, and short. That even sets up a tension. Life is difficult. It's full of suffering and struggle and anguish, yet it's short. Somehow we want more, even though it can be so bad. Now, Hobbes didn't have the answer to this situation. Moses did, as we'll see. Now, the question is, in these two verses, why are we swept away in death? Why is it that we only live a certain period of time? Why is it that mortals have to worry about being mortals? Well, he explains this as the verses go on. And this is all setting up the way to pray and the way to be in a world of suffering and struggle, but such that you do not lose hope. Verses 7 and 8. We are consumed by your anger and terrified by your indignation. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. So God is not a detached spectator. The reason for mortality, the reason for our troubles in this world, is that we have sinned against God. There's a rift, there's a cleavage, there's a gap between human life and the eternal divine life. Something has gone radically wrong. 
So Moses says we are consumed and terrified by God's anger because our sins are transparent to God, even our secret sins. We're in another political season, and politicians love exposing the mistakes and the gaffes of other politicians. But think of this. God knows everything about every human being, and it's impossible to cover up before the face of God. God knows everything, even our supposedly secret sins. So this is setting up this tension, this problem. God is there. He is our dwelling place. Moses is talking to God, yet God and humans are not on perfect terms because of sin, because of the death that results from sin. And the fuller story, of course, is in the book of Genesis in 1, 2, and 3, where we see the creation of a totally good world. God puts human beings in that world, and they turn against God and make themselves the center by listening to the voice of the enemy, the voice of Satan. Moses continues to explain our plight, verses 9 through 11. All our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our years with a moan. Our days may come to 70 years or 80 if our strength endures, yet the best of them are but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and we fly away. If only we knew the power of your anger, your wrath is as great as the fear that is your due. walked with God, who saw miracles with God, who received the law of God, who prophesied the coming of God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, said, if only we knew the extent of your wrath, we could approach you properly. You see, this is how you summarize this. It's good to know the truth about God, even if that truth is uncomfortable or difficult. Now, this forms a kind of hinge to the rest of the psalm which is a prayer, a very direct prayer. The whole thing is a prayer. If only we knew the power of your wrath. Now, we know from the rest of Scripture that there's one person who fully knows the wrath of God. It wasn't Moses. It wasn't David. It wasn't Abraham. It wasn't Isaiah. It was Jesus Christ. Because Christ came to live an impeccable life, to teach, to preach, to raise the dead, to heal the sick, but principally he came to die. He was a man who was born to die and to die in our place. On the cross, Jesus cries out from Psalm 22, one of the many psalms of lament from the Old Testament. This is another one, Psalm 90. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So the biblical understanding is that God himself in the person of Christ is so concerned about our plight and about our suffering, that he himself, in the person of Christ, would enter our world and suffer for us, for us, and in fact, take the penalty that we deserve. So Christ calls out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So who alone knows the full extent of God's wrath? Jesus Christ. And he forms the entry point into a significant life where we can address suffering and live through suffering with meaning. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, as John the Baptist said. Or think of this passage. There's so many of them. 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul says, For God made him who had no sin to be sin for us or a sin offering for us, so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. This great exchange. He, though he was innocent and perfect and morally impeccable, 
took the penalty we deserve. He knows the wrath of God. And if we know him, if we trust him as our sacrifice, as the go-between, that wrath can be absorbed. The technical term for this is called propitiation. So it is good to know the kind of God that God is. Why? It explains our plight. Death, suffering, struggle is not meaningless. It is the verdict. It's the penalty on human sin. But we are not left in that alone because Christ came to set us free, to provide a way. And moreover, while this psalm emphasizes the shortness of life, the fact that we're dust and so on, Christ promises his followers that they will rise again at the last day. So in John 5, he says, I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. I tell you the truth, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. So he's saying in the future, at the end of history, there will be a resurrection and those that know Christ as Lord and Savior, the one who took their wrath, will rise up from the dust into resurrected bodies. And you see this also in 1 Corinthians 15. So we have to really think of this psalm in light of what's coming next or what's coming in the future, in the coming of Christ and then at the resurrection of the dead even further in the future. Now let's consider this prayer because the prayer teaches us how to live in this fallen world of mortality and frustration where we give all of our emotions to God honestly without fear, but without lapsing into hysteria or histrionics. This is very raw language, but it's from Moses, the man who knew God, and it's inspired scripture. So it's a model for us. Jesus prayed the Psalms and knew the Psalms. Jesus endorsed the Hebrew Bible. The Psalms, more than any other books in the Bible, teach us how to pray. And we need to know how to pray if we need to know how to live in this broken, difficult world. Now, verses 12 through 17 are given to us on the basis of God's character. That is, despite our dusty, ephemeral world of mortality, despite all the heartbreak, or perhaps we should say because of this, we need to pray. And we need to pray in a certain way. The dynamic and flavor of prayer is this. Bring all of yourselves before God. Why? We dwell in God. God is our dwelling place for all generations. Moses prayed. This is given to us so we can learn how to pray. We can dwell in God. In fact, as one of the verses goes on to say, a God of unfailing love. Yet also we dwell east of Eden because we're in a kind of exile because of human sin. So we need to re-educate and reorient ourselves, as I said earlier. In our culture, we tend to divert ourselves often from the pain of the world, our own pain and other people's pain. We may numb ourselves or anesthetize ourselves through entertainment, possibly through drugs, through some other thing. Or we might just lapse into sentimentality. And Christians are prone to this. By sentimentality, I mean that we try to make everything look perfectly good even though it isn't. We try to give silly answers to profound problems. And we don't really recognize the problem of fallenness and sin and mortality for what it is. We pretend that the world is unfallen somehow. But if you don't understand the fall, you don't understand redemption. So we have to see and feel and pray through the pain and struggling and groaning and exile of this world to be authentically ourselves before 
the true God who is there, who hears our prayers. So we need better teachers. We need more than a precious moment's theology. The world is not made up of Thomas Kincaid paintings. It's very different than that. George Rouault would be far better, but I don't have slides for him. Let's look at verse 12. What does Moses pray in light of this staggering preface of who we are in God's world? 12. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Teach us to number our days. That is, life is short. So Moses is saying, God, teach us to make the most of every moment. Even though life is short and we live in a diseased, disoriented world, life is not meaningless. We do not escape history as in the Eastern religions of Hinduism and Buddhism. We embrace history as the theater of God's redemption. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Life is short, but life has meaning. If it didn't, Moses wouldn't be praying this. It has meaning in light of the shortness, in light of the difficulties and suffering. It still has meaning. So we need to have a heart of wisdom. We need wisdom for a wounded world, given the scarcity of time, the immensity of eternity, the mortality of humanity. We really have no time to waste, nowhere to hide. There's no time like now, and right now counts forever. Verse 13. Number our days, verse 12, 13. Relent, Lord, how long will it be? Have compassion on your servants. Now, this is strong language. The word relent really means return. It means, Lord, come back. We've experienced the punishment. We've experienced the death. We've experienced the fear. Lord, relent. Have compassion. Now, you might think that this is disrespectful. You should be saying, oh, Lord, you are so good. You give me only good things. Everything is wonderful. Amen. That's not how godly people pray. Godly people pray in terms of the realities that they face, the realities of blood and guts and difficulties and personal handicaps and disappointments and broken relationships. And this is how Moses, the man of God, who knew God face-to-face, who received the Ten Commandments, who prophesied Jesus' prays. Relent! How long will it be? Return is another way of putting that. Lord, return to us. Now, here's something interesting. While life is so short, just like a watch in the night, he says, how long? You see, how long? It's difficult to see your best friends die. My father died when I was 11 years old in a plane crash. We've all lost friends. We've all lost family members and so on. That's difficult. Relent, Lord. How long will it be? that we suffer like this, that we go through all this anguish. Relent. Moses, this is it. Moses has the confidence to pray this way before God because God is our dwelling place. God is all-knowing. God is all-powerful. Moses addresses God. He's not just talking about God. He's getting a hold of God and pulling. Lord, relent. Come down. Do something. Make a difference now. We We need to learn how to pray like this. Forget about these mamby-pamby, peachy-keen prayers. Pray your gut. Pray your soul. Pray your problems. Pray the suffering and struggling of a world in rebellion against God. Pray about a world that's groaning in exile before God. Pray for a world full of cemeteries and hospitals. Pray for people who are blind. 
Pray for people who can't hear. Pray for yourself. Pray for sin patterns. Pray the problems before God. Moses did. There's more. I'm already yelling. Verse 14. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Verse 15. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us for as many years as we have seen trouble. So what Moses is praying here is for existential satisfaction in a broken, fallen, exiled, groaning world. He knows it's fallen. He saw his own people judged by God when they rebelled against God. Moses knows this world. But Moses is grabbing on to God. He's saying, Lord, relent, return, come down, make a difference, and change me from the inside. He's saying, satisfy us. These two verses have to do with emotional life, with affective life. It's not these emotions at the expense of the fallen world, ignoring the fallen world, putting Thomas Kincaid plaster all over the place, wallpaper all over the place. It's in light of the fallen world. Teach me. Satisfy me. Make a difference emotionally at the core of my being. I pray this prayer so often. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen trouble. Moses is saying, all right, you've punished us enough. You've made life very hard for long enough. Now, Lord, I know who you are. I know you are a dwelling place. I know that I can talk to you. So come and restore it. Make us glad. Satisfy us, God. May we sing for joy. Now, you see, this is not Pollyanna. This is not superficial emotional language. This is rooted in the deepest possible metaphysics and theology and philosophy and experience and history you could possibly imagine. Moses. This is how he prays. This is how we should pray. From the heart, according to truth and wisdom, and in light of the suffering and struggles of this world, with all of our being before God, because you cannot escape God. He is our dwelling place. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love. There's the mention of love for the first time. Moses is confident that he can appeal to the love of God in the midst of this suffering, smoldering, burning world. What confidence in prayer this man has. What guts in prayer this man has to pray this way. Make us glad, O oh God. Maybe some of you need to pray this prayer. We're going to have time when I'm done, which will be fairly soon, I hope, to go in the room and pray with people, to pray your sorrows, to pray your struggles, to pray your unfulfilled dreams. We'll have time we can get down and really seek the Lord on this. Some of you may be in a very difficult season. I know my wife and I have been in a terrible season for a good dozen years. Declining health, broken dreams, I'm not going to go into it. But we pray so often, Lord, make us glad for as many years as you've afflicted us, as many days as you've afflicted us, as many years as we have seen trouble. Lord, we've had 12 bad years. How about 12 good years? That'd be pretty good. I'm 53 now. So I'm 65, 12 good years, better years, years of more blessing, blessing more people, more health for my wife, more encouragement. But even if that doesn't come to pass, because I'm a follower of Christ, I believe there will be an eternity of blessing in the future at the resurrection. I have that hope, and that hope is as secure as the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is a space-time historical event. But I don't just put it all there at the end. I'm praying like Moses, Lord, now. Please, reveal yourself. 
This is how Jesus taught us to pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. See, Moses is praying the same way, really, that Jesus taught us to pray. Last two verses. May your deeds be shown to your servants, your splendor to their children. May the favor of the Lord our God rest on us, establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. The last two verses are a benediction. Moses is asking that the favor of God rest upon him and on his children, on his posterity. He's not just talking about himself alone, but his posterity, the people in general. He's calling for a divine manifestation of favor to rest on him and on future generations. In light of the shortness of life, he wants other generations to experience and make known the glory of God. So he's calling out that God would work through him. This is very important. He says, establish the works of our hands. That is, God, the God in whom we have our dwelling, the God who shows unfailing love, the God who is angry with sin, and we know in the New Testament, the God who has absorbed sin through Christ, work through us in this fleeting, difficult, painful world. We're not going to give up. We're not going to escape it. We're going to work in the midst of it. So Moses ends this with an affirmation of action. In light of the world, in light of God, in light of this plea to make us glad, Lord, to touch us, to help us, to reach us, he says, establish the works of our hands. That is, make a difference through us. This is really much like what Paul said in Philippians 2, 12 and 13. He says, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. So this world of suffering and struggle and pain, if you take it seriously, is difficult. And you can't really avoid it successfully, and you cannot ultimately escape God. But this psalm is telling us to remember our eternal creator, that he is transcendent as creator and designer, but he is with us. He is our dwelling place. We should remember, in the midst of this fallen, groaning, exiled world, his unfailing love. So in light of that, on the basis of that, we can lament and petition God for meaning, for joy, for restoration, with our broken hearts. And if you don't have a broken heart in this world, there's something wrong with you. Moreover, we actually know more than Moses did, because at his point in salvation history, all about Christ and all about redemption had not been revealed. We know the future. We know the past very clearly if we know the Bible, that Christ has come to be our Lord and Savior. He's provided forgiveness and justification, and he's provided hope for a better type of life, for a more Christ-like life, and ultimately for the redemption and purging and judging of the universe. And so we on this side of the cross, on this side of the resurrection, should take this psalm to heart, read it, reread it, memorize portions of it, and seek what Francis Schaeffer called substantial healing. Yes, the final healing for the redeemed is at the resurrection of the just. But there is real forgiveness right now through justification, which is perfect. If you know Christ, all of your sin is atoned for. You are justified. The righteousness of Christ is given to you. You are a new creature in Christ Jesus. That's something to celebrate. But that begins a process 
of sanctification, becoming more Christ-like, being more filled with the Spirit, more loving, more peaceful, more patient, more kind, and so on. And we should wrestle with God and wrestle with the Bible and wrestle with ourselves that we can see substantial healing in this broken, bloody, difficult world. We don't give up when we face some sort of difficulty like homelessness or a disease or broken relationship, or a broken dream, instead of closing in on ourselves, pulling away from God, we should do exactly what Moses did, did, is to reach out to God on the basis of God's character, on the basis of God's promises, and pray this kind of prayer. And when we live this kind of life, if we're followers of Christ, this is attractive to people. Because people don't want mamby-pamby, Pollyanna, Christians who can't see evil and suffering and death for what it is. If you are a Christian, you believe the Bible, you believe in Christ, you know why there is death, because of sin. You know the meaning of sin. It's rebellion against God. You know the ultimate solution to the problem of sin and the separation between God and humans. It's the person and work of Jesus Christ. And furthermore, we have this wonderful, beautiful way to live as Christians. We can pray like this. We can unburden ourselves. We can open our hearts, open our souls, and gain emotional, existential presence in the world, maturity, wisdom. And what I hope we'll see more and more in the Christian world is what you might call emotional virtuosos. You know what a virtuoso is on drums or guitar or in poetry? But think of emotional virtuosos. A virtuoso is someone full of virtue, full of excellence, And a Christian who really understands this psalm and knows Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord is filled with the Spirit and sees the world for what it is and doesn't give up can be an emotional virtuoso. That is, you know how to handle your own pain and suffering. You present it to God. You don't close down. You don't back off. You are able to stare death and dying and sickness and sin and lies in the face in this broken world without being a coward. You can have emotional courage to go to the broken, the weak, the difficult, and offer them an ear and offer them a helping hand and pray with them and listen to them. You can live life to the fullest as a Christian. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this psalm. I thank you for the power of it. I ask you, Lord, that the reality of it might be known to all of us. We pray, Holy Spirit, you might come and minister to our woundedness, our brokenness, that you you fill those wounds with truth, the healing balm of the gospel. Lord, may we give more and more of ourselves to you day by day. And in so doing, may we become more profound, more powerful, more courageous, more confident, more competent witnesses of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.